Welcome to The Gathering Pod, the audio version of my weekly gathering room broadcast. I'm Martha Beck. So today's topic is the uses and misuses of the imagination. I have been reading a lot about imagination as not only a way to make sense of the world, but as a brain function, right? So I've always believed that the main cause of our suffering is the misuse of our imagination. Some people may say, yes, but in the way of integrity, you said that an untruth, believing something that wasn't true, is the main, the cause of emotional pain. And I would say yes, because to believe something that isn't true, you have to imagine that something's true when it isn't. So it's the same thing. You're using your imagination to say, for example, you know, that guy looked at me strangely, he doesn't like me. It may just be that the guy has a weird, maybe his face is just like that, you know, you don't know. So we imagine things like, oh no, um, catastrophes will befall me, Uh, I'll lose the ones I love, I'll run out of money, and they're all valid concerns, but anything that's not in the moment is in the imagination. Anything that is in the future is only in the imagination, right? So for years and years, I've been doing this coaching and coach training, and we talk a lot about finding the beliefs that are causing somebody to suffer, and then looking at them and seeing, okay, without imagination, just with looking at the facts, are we sure this is true? So the Byron Katie work does this, cognitive behavioral therapy does this, ACT therapy does this. I've, I've played with all these modalities as we used to say at Harvard. <laughs> Sorry, drink. Um, apologize to anybody for whom that was a trigger. So we imagine and imagine and imagine things that frighten us, that depress us, and all of that. And a big part of getting healthy is seeing where our suffering comes from stuff that is not knowable. Or we can actually, when we look at it closely, we see that it is not true. Like you can go to the guy who looked at you funny and say, does that look on your face mean you hate me? I did this with one of my advisors at Harvard once. He, uh, he was not American. English was his second language. And he wrote me the most profane emails I have ever received. <laughs> I'd send him a chapter of my PhD dissertation. And he would write back with a lot of F words, uh, a lot of other words that uh, with, with other letters that I'm not even going to mention. He was very blunt. One might say enraged. And finally, I, I called him trembling. And I said, dude, only I used his name. Do you hate me? Or is this just the way you teach? And he said, oh, oh, no, it's just the way I teach. You're fine. <laughs> so yeah, I went on being called an effing loser. And then he was, of course, my biggest champion when I got my degree. So all I'm saying is when you go and check the data, a lot of times your impressions are not borne out. Your imagination is causing you to suffer. All right, fine. So right now I'm writing about um, how to get out of anxiety and how a lot of anxiety uh, begins in the left amygdala. You hear me say this all the time. I'm obsessed with this brain stuff. And I always refer back to Jill Bolte-Taylor, who is not only a Harvard neuroanatomist, um, what do they call it, Esquire? No, Emeritus. So she was. Now she 
plays with other things. But she also uh, had a massive left hemisphere stroke and then spent eight years rebuilding her brain into another form of a Harvard neuroanatomist and therefore, I think, gets to say. She gets to say from the intellectual perspective and she gets to say from the the subjective perspective. She has lost the left hemisphere of her brain. She knows what that's like. She knows what it's like to get it back. And what she says is that most of our anxiety comes from the, the alarmist and pessimistic nature of our left hemisphere amygdala, which scares our left side hippocampus into thinking something's wrong and that we have to control everything. So that's a place that your imagination goes wrong. And over on the right hemisphere, you have an amygdala that is more full of imagination and play and uh, a, a hippocampus that is connected to the divine, basically, that can see the whole of everything, that sees things as connected and not cut up, um, that, that brings people together instead of splitting them and so on. So in Jill's experience and in her scientific opinion, the right hemisphere is doing all this stuff. So I'm writing about it and I can't just read Jill's book. I have to read all the books, right? So I'm doing this thing right now. I've read a lot of brain science and there's a point you get to in your research. If you've written a nonfiction book, you may know this, where you keep hitting the same information over and over and over. And it's like, nothing surprises you in any of the books you're reading. That means you pretty well got a grasp of where the field is at that time. So I've done this in several different fields. And in this one, it's really hard going because there's a lot of damn brain science out there. So I'm at this place where what I do is I put on an audible book at like triple speed <laughs> and it just goes, and I'm like, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. Wait, I didn't know that. And stop it and like go to the actual text in the book, the physical book and underline it and put it in my notes and everything. And then I put on triple speed again. Okay, heard it, heard it, heard it. Oh, there's something. So I've been doing that. I've been going through like a lot of books. And today I was going through one. And I have been thinking, the splendor of imagination on the right hemisphere is what I've been thinking about primarily as I'm writing my stuff. And I hit this book by a cognitive behavioral therapist whose name I will not mention and whose book I will not mention because I don't like them. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he's a very nice man, but oh boy, I don't like this book. And it's so interesting because people who write about the right hemisphere talk about how people who are left hemisphere dominated tend to be very judgmental and to think they know everything. And this is what that book is doing. And it's a book that says, you know, it starts by saying the right hemisphere is a, is a small crutch that your left hemisphere needs. Like your imagination is this tiny thing that you don't really, and it's always just saying the wrong thing. You've got to stay rational. You've got to just pep up. And he gives uh, um, advice like, he literally says this, and this is a 2014 book. If you feel depressed, you need to buck up and fake happiness so that, you know, because that's going to put your left hemisphere in gear and you're going to feel happier. And you've got to analyze yourself because you are wrong and you got to figure out where you're wrong, where that sappy, passive, like discardable right hemisphere is telling you lies. You got to stick with reason, man. You got to, I mean, it is like, it's like the whole westernization of of the entire world is riding on this bolt of energy. Um, and my favorite 
um, neuro, um, neurologist is uh, Ian McGilchrist, who's a, a fabulous scholar in many different fields. He's a psychiatrist, he's a philosopher, he's an art historian. And he, in a book called The Master and His Emissary, talks about the westernization. It's called The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World. So it's sociological as well as neurological. And what he says is that this whole way of thinking, like, buck up, is and the domination of reason, even when it's actually not working with valid data itself. He's like, that has taken over the damn world. So this is my spiritual podcast. And you all may be thinking, what does this have to do with me? I come here to feel better. <laughs> This is what it has to do with you. Um, I believe that the Western world has pushed all the ecosystems and, and all of the people to the brink. I think the, the Western way of seeing things, the weird way of think, seeing things, uh, Western, educated, industrialized, uh, rich, and democratic. That last one is arguable. But people who have absorbed that worldview have been experiencing much more anxiety as history goes on. Like the more they go, the more anxious they become, which is really interesting to me because I'm writing about anxiety. And I think the westernized, the westernized view is the same as the view that is destroying ecosystems and destroying people's health and making them anxious. And the interesting thing about that is that I'm obsessed with, from a completely different angle, I have always since childhood been obsessed with the idea that I would be part of a, a large number of people who would change the way people think. And as you know, I came to call that the transformation of consciousness. And I believe it to be, it's, a, it's in the future. It's my imagination. But it's a lot of people's imagination. And a lot of you have told me that it's your imagination too, or at least it's a deep feeling you have. And I think it's, the one thing that might save us on this planet is if we shift this westernized, weird um, way of seeing the world and get more in touch with a holistic view that sees us as part of nature, that sees each, uh, every human being as connected to every other and, and all of us connected to the animals and the water and everything. This transformation will have to happen um, if we're not to destroy ourselves. So I'm reading this book, which is just a thing about how you should chipper up by focusing on your left hemisphere. And I thought, oh my God, this is the westernized view fighting for itself. So I write to Jill. I'm like, Jill, this dude says the exact opposite of what you said. He said when people get a left hemisphere stroke, they're totally depressed. And when they have a right hemisphere stroke, they're fine because they can just, nobody even needs all that nonsense imagination. And uh, she wrote back and she said, I'm very familiar with this position. And she said, here's the way I read it. If you are an educated man or woman who believes that the left hemisphere way of thinking and be having degrees and being an analyst is your entire ego state, and that gets taken out, you are going to get very sad. You're going to feel like you've lost your identity. She said, I didn't feel like I lost my identity. I, I found myself in a world of connectivity and joy. And she said, another thing is that people with left hemisphere strokes often cry a lot. And she said, um, 
I think people, they also don't have language, so they can't say what they're crying about. And she said, I'll tell you what I was crying about. I was in awe. I was in continuous gratitude and presence and awe. And that's why I was crying. And if you've read Byron Katie's books, you know, after her sort of enlightenment event, she, her, she, she cries very easily. I've seen her cry many times. And it's not out of suffering or depression. It's in, in gratitude and appreciation and awe of the beauty of the world. So what this man had written made me feel really unsettled. I, was, I felt like I was back in Sunday school as a kid being told, here's what you have to believe. And I realized that he was claiming that imagination is a faulty way to go through life. But that's only true in his imagination because he doesn't have any data on that. And as Ian McGilchrist says about the two ways of seeing, one I think is, is the westernized weird view and one is the place we need to go for the transformation of consciousness. Uh, Ian McGilchrist says the right side, that one way of seeing says, I do not know. And the other one says, I know that there is nothing to know. One believes that that one cannot know. The other knows, in quotation marks, that one cannot believe. And that know, in question mark, that the part of us that knows we cannot believe, that is the part that, um, that all the I have control of the universe thinking is trying to stomp out. And it's, it's, it's everywhere. Like if, you, if you've been through higher education, as I once was, you've had this belief system drummed into your head. You've had it drummed into your head through all the isms, the sexism, the ageism, the racism, the, the fundamentalism, all the isms come out of this, I know. And that is not real knowledge. That is imagining that one can know that there is nothing to believe. So here's the thing. In social science, what we say is, if you can't prove it absolutely because it's untestable, like if you can't prove that there's life after death, okay? So you can, if you believe in life after death, someone can say that's make-believe. And you can say, well, maybe, I don't know. So if you are believing something that is um, cheering you up, then you're going to, it's going to be useful. You're going to find that it works for you, even though you can't know whether it's absolutely true or absolutely false. So this guy says, when you're depressed, you need to buck up and act happy. And I try that. First of all, it can't be proven. It's his imagination and the imagination of his field. And it, I try to take it in and I'm like, Oh yeah, I tried that once when I was depressed for 25 years and it did not work. It drove my depression harder because I was split from my truth and being split from the truth doesn't make me happy. And if I say instead, the imagination on the right side of my brain is this unbelievable adventure, a cosmonaut that can go into the universe and bring me things um, bring things into being that may never have been invented before. It can write books, it can paint pictures, it can make friendships, it can make a podcast, it can do all this stuff. If I believe that that is a way of becoming happier, it works for me. So whatever works for you, nobody's absolutely sure. Remember, one says, I know that there's nothing to believe. And the other part doesn't say you're wrong. It just says, I don't know. 
<laughs> There's another uh, quote from, from Nisargadatta Maharaj, my favorite Indian guru, who says, the one true statement the mind can ever make is, I do not know. So all of this, just to say, use your imagination not to buy into the crap in society that makes you feel bad, but to start exploring ways that you can feel better. Use this incredible tool, this infinite tool of human imagination to get better, not worse, to get healthier and more joyful and more open-minded, open-minded. That's the whole thing. If your imagination says the world is closed, you're done. Like, get off the planet. But if your imagination says, oh my goodness, there are no limits to the wonders I can perceive. And I am going, imagine, for example, that everything is happening for you instead of to you. See, just see how it works. Okay. So we got some questions coming in and I love them. Hello, the lovely peoples. This is Marty, Martha, inviting you to a free masterclass that I have made called Five Paths to Your Purpose. Probably the most common question I get from people is, how do I find my purpose? Why don't I feel that I'm on purpose? Well, it turns out there are certain things you have to do to find your purpose, and I broke them down into five, and I made a little masterclass about it. So if you'd like to see it, just go to marthabeck.com slash purpose and you will be able to watch it without any charge at all. So Anne says, I'll put these here so I can look at them. I've been reading about masculine energy and feminine energy and how feminine energy is starting to be more valued. Did you think embracing feminine energy plays a part in the transformation? Yes, that is why the only novel I've ever written is Diana herself and it's about the um, the reclamation and healing of the feminine. So it's an allegory. I don't believe it literally at all, but it, it was my way of talking about how the feminine, it, it's about a woman who's born and then thrown away into a garbage can. And she's like a brown-skinned, black-haired baby, and um, everybody just treats her like dirt because I believe that not just the feminine but the, but all the feminine and most people in the world are brown. Like it is all the stuff we've thrown on the trash heap of our society. That is the stuff that is the most precious and that's what we need to get back. And it is in no way negative toward men because men benefit from feminine energy too. We all benefit from a balance of the masculine and feminine and left hemisphere, uh, westernized weird thinking almost always throughout history used the word man to describe all human beings. So that the feminine's been chucked out, it needs to come back. Like history is the story, you will, be, you will learn history as the story of how many people killed the most other people in a short period of time. Let's look at the wars, let's look at the dictators, that's history. And feminist scholars talk about her story, which is about how long it takes, how much effort, how much love and care it takes to even bring a child into the world, let alone raise one. That is where all the work of goodness is happening for all of us. And we think the important stuff is killing someone. You can do that in a second. You know, that's nothing. That is not an accomplishment, people. <laughs> bringing something to life and 
and and keeping it safe, Bri keeping the planet safe so that all the creatures and all the plants can continue to be born and to live and to thrive. That's the real exercise, not how much can we kill in a short period of time. I'm on a little bit of a soapbox, and I do I do apologize if my fierce demeanor seems directed at you. I know I can get so soapboxy on this topic that people feel attacked. <laughs> I don't mean to attack. I'm just very enthusiastic. So Dr. Donna says, how can we counter voices like the author you are describing? I hear this a lot from family and friends. Just get over it. Well, if that works, you know, go for broke. If not, then stop imagining that other people's advice is telling you the right thing. And start imagining that if you, for example, observe your own thought processes and your own emotions and take a loving stance toward them, uh, try imagining that that will help and just check it. I That worked for me. So try it, but you have to really try it to get the data. I'm going to repeat this. Use the part of you that is buying into the system and all the people saying, just get over it. Pull back from that. Pull back from an imagining that may be true because it hasn't panned out. Try instead, I will watch my, my pain, my sorrow, my anxiety with love, and I will do that for a long time every day and see what happens. You have to actually do it. That's the problem. So yeah, that's another, the, the reason you have to go to your imagination is the people around you will be giving the same bad advice that is in this book. It's our whole culture. So India, Ari, oh my God, she is a rock star. Hi, India. I love your work. She says, yes, but what do we do when we imagine the best and the worst happens? Then, oh, I love those things. Every time it's happened to me, um, it turned out that those were the biggest liberations of all. So we imagine like, for example, I, when I was in my second pregnancy, I, I imagined having a brilliant child who would go on to do things at Harvard and blah, blah, blah. And uh, then it turned out he had Down syndrome. I imagined the best and the worst happened. When the worst happens, stop and imagine a way it might not be so awful. Imagine that the worst thing that has ever happened to you was a gift that a hundred years before you were born, God drew a circle around the space where that awful thing happened to you. Because I'm here to tell you every awful thing that has happened to me in my life has turned out to be a door to liberation. If I hadn't had this baby with Down syndrome when I was getting my third Harvard degree, I would have stayed in the same frame of mind as this guy who's bugging me so much today. I would have been that arrogant, obsessed, I know what to do self. And instead, I had to throw the doors of my imagination open and I literally had to by almost force, imagine a world where my son's life made sense. And the only world in which his life made sense was a spiritual world. And in that world, he is a freaking genius, you guys. And I'm not even, and I'm talking about evidence, 30 some years of evidence that he's a magical being. But I had to imagine it before I, I mean, when he was just a little plasma pet, Okay, I had psychic experiences around him, so there was that. But there was precious little other stuff that I could look at to say, it's okay to have Down syndrome. 
So, but because it was so contrary to my, to what I imagined the world to be, it made me imagine something radically different. If we're going to fix this planet, you guys, we're going to have to imagine radically different things, not just little, oh, over here, I tweak that. The system is a little, oh yeah, let's, let's put a nice competence, nice people in charge. No, it has to be a total reimagining of everything from our own identity as beings to the tiniest grain of sand on the beach. We're going to have to rethink everything. And that's why when we've committed ourselves to helping with the transformation of consciousness, sometimes the worst seems to happen to us. It presents us with the absolute necessity to imagine how our, our previous thoughts were wrong. And without that, we just wouldn't do it. The brain can't do that. We have to go after experience. Oh, and India has a follow-up. And what is the difference in imagination and belief? I too believed I was part of a group of people who would change the world. And I have no idea what to do with those imaginings now. That could, I could have written that. <laughs> I have felt that so many times over and over and over and over. Here's the thing. There's a difference from a belief that comes from outside you and a belief that comes from inside you. So in the way of integrity, I'm talking about pulling back from everything the culture tells you and, and instead basing your beliefs on what feels most deeply true and makes your the four parts of yourself, body, heart, mind, um, soul, makes them all line up. So I'm going to ask you to all of you guys, to all of you folks, to repeat the phrase that I have found is the most resonant for everyone of the truth. And it's simply you say silently in your mind three or four times, I am meant to live in peace. And try believing that. Just for a minute, you can go to something else. I am meant to live in peace. Repeat it a few times, believe it provisionally. You can drop it later. But for me, and for a lot of the people I've worked with and crowds that I've worked with, that statement just kind of chunks into something that is truth-shaped in our hearts and souls. And, and that one, that is how to frame your beliefs with that sensation. And I'll tell you, I, I have been so discouraged so many times. I thought it's not happening. It didn't happen. I thought the pandemic would do something and it didn't Actually, I didn't think that. I think it's still working. Um, but a lot of times I, I thought I was doing something that was like a Hail Mary pass and it was all I had to give and it didn't work the way I expected. And I was like, oh, I was wrong. I'm not here to be a part of transformation of consciousness. And when I imagined that, that it was pointless, I, that's when I got depressed. That's when I felt separate from the truth. And when I said, no, the universe has a different way of doing this than I would thought up because, of course, I'm obviously this three pound chunk of matter in my brain is obviously more powerful than the whole universe at knowing what's true. <laughs> when I decide, all right, I'm going to imagine the transformation of consciousness again. And I just sort of pop back up to the surface, buoyant and relaxed and like excited for the next chapter. And I don't think that it's necessarily true. I do not know. The only thing I'm really sure of is that I'm not going to go with the people who know there's nothing to believe because that doesn't, that doesn't pass the logic test or the sniff, the sniff test. And if a belief makes you feel bad, it's the sniff test. That 
feels yucky and I'm not going to eat it. Okay, that smells yucky and I'm not going to eat it. So Aji says, in a time of many sudden changes, end of relationship, moving homes, etc., when it feels like one's entire life is being uprooted, how can we make sure our imagination is in tune with our integrity? Oh, this is such a great question. And our whole Wayfinder coach training is based on this model of change because rapid change is the only thing we can be sure of. So that's what we coach people to cope with. And what you find is that in a time when everything's being uprooted, that's actually when you can find your integrity. You're not believing all the stuff that's coming at you because you're, you're so uprooted from everything that it frees your belief receptors. And so you get to imagine what makes you feel peace. And I, I love Pema Chodron's thing, um, saying on this, she went to her Rinpoche when she was training and she said, look, I'm getting a divorce, I'm moving house, all these things are happening. And it's a, a period of transition. And once I get through it, I'll be okay. And her Rinpoche smiled at her and said, your entire life is a transition. Once you accept that, you'll be okay. So one of our imaginary things is that life stops changing. It doesn't. But another imaginary thing is we can only find our integrity if we're on stable ground. Nope. When you're out there wild and free and you're like, woo, what's going to keep me like functioning in this time? That's when you have the epiphanies. That's when the mind opens and beautiful things come in. Okay, I've got two more questions, so I always go a little late. So Amy says, do you sense being neurodivergent, maybe a kind of brain and being evolution? I believe that's true. I think that um, gender identity being like challenged for the first time in human history, at least in, in weird cultures, it's not in every culture, um, but uh, higher diagnoses of people on the autism spectrum, people with ADHD, people with ADD like mine, um, Down syndrome, all those things I think are bringing in new kinds of neurology that can go more directly to the truth that we need to go into. It's not available yet in our Western weird culture um, sort of cognition, but it's got to come from somewhere. And I think it's going to come largely from people who are neurodivergent. It just makes sense to me. I don't know. This is what I believe. Okay. Holy Babel says, oh, Holy Babe says, what are some of the things you do when your imagination is feeding you anxiety? Okay, here's the first thing. If the anxiety is coming through your mind, in other words, you're telling yourself stories about what could go wrong, then it's really good to challenge that, write down those beliefs. You know, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. And use something like the Byron Katie work or cognitive behavioral therapy to say like, is, am I sure that's true? Like, let's look at different options that could happen. So that's if the fear is coming from a, a cortex pathway, like what you know, what you think, what you say, or what other people say, then you can go at it logically. If your imagination is going off a spark of fear in your amygdala, any traumatic thing that happened to you, uh, your amygdala, if it was bad enough, your amygdala will associate it with whatever was happening right before and during. So somebody who, um, who is in the middle of a bombing when they're looking at a clock, they might, after that, be terrified of clocks and not know why, because the amygdala isn't verbal, it's not conceptual, it doesn't feed you a story, it's just like, ah, I'm terrified for no reason. But then 
you feel this pulse of fear and you think, oh my God, there's something wrong. There must be. I wouldn't feel this bad if something went wrong. I may be having a heart attack. I may be dying. A panic attack is a situation of the imagination going berserk because of that deep amygdala fear. And you need to be very, very gentle with that part of yourself. And if don't try to reason with that part. If you don't know where the fear is coming from, drop your breathing rate. Get really slow and deep with your breathing. That helps your brainstem. And then start just giving yourself kind wishes. You'll be okay, honey. It's all right. You only need to be here now. You're okay. You're okay. You're okay. Everything you fear is just imagination. Everything that's real is right here. And we're okay. So, and sometimes you need to use both. Anyway, so yeah, imagination can set us free, can transform the world, can take us into a transformation of consciousness. And the misuse of imagination is to say, oh, they were all correct. Too bad I need to put on a happy face and be cheerful till I die and serve the machine of the capitalist oppressors. Oh, dear. Let's get rid of that imagination. Let's go with the imagination that sets everything free and wild. Thank you so much for being here, all of us imagining together. It's so wonderful, and I love you, and I will see you soon again on The Gathering Room. Bye for now. Change, eh? Mm, it sure does keep happening. I feel like there's something that you, Martha Beck, have created that will help us understand how change affects us and how to manage it. Oh, by coincidence, now that you mention it, I have. It's called the change cycle. Mm. It's about four aspects of the whole process of change. And we've put the information together in one handy place so that the people can refer to it when they're going through change. And you know what else? We also made podcast episodes about each of the four squares in the cycle that are also on this new page that we've made for the peoples. Well, how remarkable is that? All right. You can find out all about the change cycle at marthabeck.com slash change. It's a bewildering moment to be alive. That's why Martha Beck, me, and Rowan Mangan, me, created Bewildered, the wildly successful podcast for people trying to figure it out. Most of us are trying to fit society's expectations about how we should live, which is stressful and confusing. On Bewildered, we look at topics like perfectionism, what it means to have enough, anxiety, and creativity to see where the culture may be pushing us all away from the lives that truly fulfill us. If you're bewildered, if you want to think and you love to laugh, come join us. 